Bibles to Song of Solomon chapter 6, Song of Solomon chapter 6. As you remember last time we were together, Solomon and his wife, these newlyweds, had their their first little uh, conflict, their little uh, quarrel uh, that they had, and uh, we left them what they were you know, uh, again, dealing with it right now. And I'm sure they were both, you know, thinking about what was going on, what happened, how they handled it, what could have they done better maybe. But tonight in chapter 6, the conflict is resolved. They solve the conflict. And it's a great chapter for us because the last one shows that, you know, married couples, they do have problems. There's no doubt about it. But this one, this chapter, they're solved. And the thing is, is we get to see what they did, what it was they, they did to solve the problem. You know, the things that they said and things that they didn't say, the things that added to resolving the conflict. And like I said, every marriage has problems. And there's no running away from those problems. You can't avoid them. You can't escape them. But when problems do come, here's the thing. You have to fix them. You have to fix them. Because problems usually don't fix themselves. And the longer they go without being fixed, they usually get worse. They snowball. And they can turn into really, really ugly, you know, uh, endings. Both parties have to want to fix the problems. And both parties have to work at fixing them. And they have to... They really have to focus on themselves and and not focus so much on the other person. And if we would both do that, like like the psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me, Lord, where I need to change. And if both both are doing that with whole hearts, just committed to doing that, they'll bless each other totally. Because it's about blessing the other person uh, and and, and more than, you know, focusing on, on what I'm doing. And that's the way we're to do it. We're to focus on ourselves. And the conflict here between the Shulamite, which was Solomon's wife, and her beloved is solved here. So we want to look at what they did to solve the conflict between them so we can learn from Solomon and his wife. And again, as I said, we left off last week with the Shulamite realizing her mistake in judgment. She had gone to bed. It was probably late at night. You know, she had just washed herself or taken a bath and her you know her feet were clean and she heard the knock at the door Solomon was there and she didn't want to get up she didn't want to put on a robe she didn't want to you know get her feet dirty and by the time she decided to go to the door Solomon was gone he said you know he he was probably you know upset that she didn't come and answer the door Um, but tonight in the study we see that she's had a change of mind and a change of heart And we see that she now wants to make things right. So let's begin with chapter 6, verse 1. And it's the daughters of Jerusalem who are speaking. The daughters of Jerusalem were were, uh, the Shulamite or Solomon's wife's uh, special attendants. And they say in verse 1, they're speaking to her, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside? Where did he go? That we may seek him with you. So... The daughters of her her servants, her attendants ask her, hey, where's your lover gone? Where where did he go so that we can help you go find him? 
She wanted to find her husband so that she could make things right with him. Now, how often have we just let our spouse go away after we've had a fight and not stopped them? And have the attitude, I'm not going to go stop them. Hey, you know what? They messed with me. They messed up. And we start developing this attitude and the justification why we're not going to go stop them. You know, and, and, and you know, we're not going to work at resolving the conflict before it gets worse. Look at verses 2 and 3 now. Now she, the Shulamite, is going to answer them. Well, my beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. So in verse 1, they ask her, where did he go? You know, where did he go? We want to we go help you find him. And then she tells them, well, here's where he's gone in verses 2 through 3. He's gone to, you know, my beloved has gone to his garden. He's gone to the beds of spices. And so she's saying, you know, he, he, she, he, she describes where he's at. Now, notice, here's the interesting thing. She knew where he was. And many times when these things happen, somebody will get mad and they just, they'll take off. And they'll go out for a while or do something. They'll go somewhere and, 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 but, and you don't know where they've gone. She knew where he was. Why? Because he was an honest, uh, honest in telling her things about him in other words she knew where she could find him she tells her attendants well he's 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 feeding his flock but you know why she knew where he was because he had proved to her earlier he was a man of his word wherever he told his wife he would be that's where she'd find him he was a man of truth he was a man of integrity he wasn't deceiving he didn't tell her, well, you know, he'd be at one place and then end up in another. Remember in chapter 5, verse 16, where she was describing the qualities of him that, that she loved about him? And she mentioned his mouth and she said, his mouth is most sweet. That's because it means that his words were kind. His mouth was a source of sweetness toward her and it was a mouth that spoke truth. You know, if you're at work and that's where your, 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 your wife should find you, you know, if you go somewhere else out of the ordinary, do you tell her? You know, do you let her know at all times where you're going to be, you know, if, if you're able to? Your behavior shouldn't raise any doubts or suspicion in her mind where you are. She should always know where to find you. You know, and, and this is really comforting and, and a real security for a wife or husband to know where their spouse is, where the, you know, when they say, this is where we're going to be. She can trust his word, even, notice, in the middle of a conflict. So what does she do? She went looking for her husband to make things right. She didn't wait for him to come back. And usually, that's what we do. I ain't going after them. And, you know, that was, I'm going to go make up with her. Usually a couple will wait for the other to make the first move. And that's when things, you know, they, they get really messy. Look at verses 4 through 10 now. So again, in verse 1, her attendants have asked, hey, where has your lover gone? Let's go look for him. Verses 2 through 3, she tells her servants, hey, he's over there. He's feeding his flock. And now notice her next word. Or, or now, now this is Solomon speaking. In verse 4, oh, my love. You're as beautiful as Terza, 
lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have, which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the noon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? We've kind of heard those words before, haven't we? But notice, again in verse 4, what are the words out of his mouth? My love, you're as beautiful. And then he goes on to explain these. She had found him. And what does Solomon do? He begins to reassure her of his love. He says in verses 4 through 10, You are beautiful, my darling. Like the lovely city of Terza. The name Terza means delightsomeness. Yes, you're as beautiful as Jerusalem. Jerusalem means peacefulness. You're as majestic as an army with billowing banners. Turn your eyes away, for they overpower me. He says, your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep that are fre- uh, f- uh, freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth matched with his twin, uh, saying, speaking that they're all even. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Again, he was using a lot of the same words he used on the night of their honeymoon. Why is he using the same words here that he used then? Because nothing had changed between them, even though they were in an argument. He's reassuring her that his love for her, in spite of the way she behaved toward him earlier, hasn't changed. She's still the wonderful woman in his eyes. He was reinforcing his commitment and his love to her. You know, their little falling out hadn't lessened his feelings for her. It hadn't lessened his love or commitment to her. No, he didn't threaten her when, she saw, when he saw her. He didn't lay down any demands. He was basically forgiving his wife before she even had a chance to say a word. Why? He probably missed her just as much as she missed him. And notice he made the first move in resolving the conflict. When he saw her, she made the first move in going looking. And then when she found him, he makes the first move when they're together. Notice he led by example. He didn't ask her to say, you know what, you need to tell me you're sorry. You You need to ask for forgiveness before he spoke to her. Can you imagine how she must have felt when he just began to pour on her all of these kind, reassuring words? She just probably glowed with love for him. You know, she's saying, she, she's knowing that whatever happened between them, man, it was over. It was behind them. That barrier was removed. Now they could move forward. Look at verses 11 through 12. Now she responds to what he had just said to her in verses 4 through 10. Beginning with verse 11, she says, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded. And the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. 
So she responds now to what he said to her in verses 4 through 10, making, you know, giving her all of those beautiful compliments. She says, I went down to the grove of walnut trees and out to the valley to see the new spring growth, to see whether the grapevines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. She said, before I realized it, she said, I found myself in the royal chariot with my beloved. Solomon's wife basically said, said in these two verses, and of 11 to 12, she says, I went to see if my beloved would forgive me. Wondering if there was still hope for us. So you can imagine what was going on in her head. She's probably thinking, man, I really messed up. I should have gotten up when he came. I can't believe I didn't answer the door when he knocked. He's probably so mad. I can't blame him. I sure hope he'll forgive me. Lord, give me the right words to say to him. And then she says, before I knew it, I was in his chariot. He had totally forgiven me. Now, this is something special. She said, when I met, before I knew it, I was in his chariot. Because in that day, when you asked another person to ride with you in your chariot, that was one of the highest forms of esteem, approval, and reconciliation and friendship you could give somebody. It was a sign that you totally trusted that person and that everything was okay between you and them. We see that in 2 Kings 10, 15. It says, after Jehu and Jehonadab had greeted each other, Jehu said to Jehonadab, are you as loyal to me as I am to you? Jehonadab replied, yes, I am. Jehu said, if you are, then give me your hand. So Jehonadab put out his hand and Jehu helped him into the chariot. They rode off as friends. Riding in her husband's chariot gave her total confidence that her husband loved her. And that they were at peace with each other. And you see, that's what forgiveness should do. It should put each other at ease. It should put each other at rest, give them peace, and give them comfort. Verse 13. Now, Solomon and his friends uh, speak out in verse 13. And he's, he's shouting, they're shouting these words out to Solomon's wife. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Next, uh, yeah, and, and so Solomon's friends, Shulamite was now in the area of Solomon's attendants. And she starts to leave when they shouted at her or shouted, shouted to her, return, return so that we may look upon you. And then she answered him, notice in the next part of the verse, what would you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the dance of the two camps. Her reply is, what is it there that you, what is it that you see in me and they answered as it were the dance of the two camps now as the song goes the best part of breaking up is the making up and that's what they're doing here there's more closeness now and joy between them solomon said when you look at me and my wife to his his attendants there he says when you when you look at me and my wife you see two armies now the word two camps there uh, at, at the second part of verse 13, the word two camps comes from the word Mahanaim, which takes us back to the time that Jacob was about to meet his brother Esau, and he was scared to death because he thought his brother was going to kill him for, for stealing the birthright. God gave him a vision, Jacob, of, two, of an army of angels sent from heaven to protect him. That is, he, that is Jacob. So Jacob called the name of the place Mahanaim because he saw two armies, the army of God above him and his own army around him. 
So what Solomon is saying here, when, he talks, when she talks about the two camps, Solomon sees his wife and, 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 uh, and husband, he sees a wife and husband like two armies marching together, each helping and defending the other. They don't battle each other, but they attack anything that will try to come against them and threaten their marriage. You know, many family specialists say today, the number one problem isn't sex, it isn't money, it isn't isn't children, it's the lack of communication. The lack of communication. And in order to fix problems, they have to be communicated. If you don't talk about the things that bother you, guess what? They're going to continue to bother you. And they're going to continue to go on. And you'll continue to be frustrated. They're not going to go away on their own. And if you don't talk about them, you can't fix them. Good communication is a must for solving problems. <clears throat> when we do our premarital classes, communication is one of the lessons. And we give them some communication guidelines to help them. And, and, and I've mentioned it before, and I mentioned it this morning, that we give them a, a question and answer sheet with several interesting questions. It's a questionnaire. I think there was 25 questions uh, on the questionnaire. We give one to the, to the man and one to the woman. We gave them separately. We said, hey, don't go home and do this together. Don't answer them together. We want you to answer them separately on your own. Because there were questions, and, and it, would, it would really show how much they've really spoken to each other during their relationship. And then the couple is to do them, like I said, separately, bring them to their next class. And then, you know, I or whoever was doing the, 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 the counseling would read out the question. And I, I use like, for example, you know, I would read out, okay, here's the question. Should the husband help the wife with the dishes? And the woman would say, oh, of course he should. Oh, yeah, he should. And, and then the guy would say, oh, you know, he'd him and haw and go, well, you know, I, that's, that's, that's woman's work. And she'd raise her eyebrows and she'd look at him and he'd kind of look like surprised. Well, you know, like he expected her to know that. and She expected him to know, yeah, you're to help me. And so I'd say, you guys obviously need to talk about this. The one that would really, uh, that I really saw the, the rise in is when um, I, uh, the, the question was, should a woman stay home with the children and raise the children and take care of the home? And, of course, the guy says, yes, definitely. And so, you know, she'd answer hers and he'd answer his. And when I'd ask the question, you know, I would ask to the, the, the future husband, I said, what do you think? How did you answer that question? Said, yeah, I, I, I would want her to stay home and, and to take care of the kids and, and not go to work. And she, the one that I remember, she, she blur, I says, there's no way I'm going to stay home today. She says, I didn't go to college and I didn't get this education to stay home and take care of my kids. I was blown away. He was blown away. And I go, oh, you, and this is just the first two questions. I go, oh, you got the rest of the, I, I was, you know, and then we went through them and I said, you guys need to talk about these things. Because usually during the relationship, nobody wants to rock the boat. Nobody wants to, everything is wonderful. And then when you say, I do, now the real answers and the real situations start to come out. And that's where the problems begin. So, you know, it, we use that because they need to talk these things over. They need to ask themselves more questions about each other and subjects that maybe they haven't discussed before they got married. And what I want to do with you tonight is share those 10, of the, those ten guidelines with you 
And it's from a book written uh, by Norman Wright, and it's called Communication Key to Your Marriage. Now, this is an old book. This is way back. We used this, you know, years ago. But the guidelines are still relevant for today. And they're guidelines that will help you with good communication when conflict does happen. The first one is be a ready listener and don't answer until the other person has finished speaking. Now, many times when couples talk and they're talking something over, one of them is doing the talking and you think the other one's doing the listening because maybe they're not saying anything. But nine times out of ten, they're going over in their mind what they're going to say to you when they get their turn. So in essence, they haven't heard a word the other person has said. Therefore, nothing gets resolved. Because I'm waiting for my turn to speak. But when we say we're going to listen, we need, to, we need to be a ready listener and not answer until the other person has finished speaking. Not interrupting them and, and breaking in and, and, and I, I, you know, I need to say this. Letting the person speak and wait until they're finished speaking. Listen and don't interrupt. Don't jump to conclusions. Listen with the intent of, here's the thing too. Listen with the intent of trying to understand not making the point you want to be understood. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is, a, it is folly and shame to him. James 1, 19 says, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. The second one, and it follows James 1, 19, Be slow to speak. Boy, we always want to be the first one to say something and just get it out there. Be slow to speak, think first. Don't be hasty in your words. Speak in such a way that the other person can understand and accept what you say. Proverbs 15, 23. Everyone enjoys a fitting reply. It is wonderful to say the right thing at the right time. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. Proverbs 21, 23, watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut and you will stay out of trouble. Proverbs 29, 20, there is more hope for a fool than some, for someone who speaks without thinking. Pro, uh, James 1, 19, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Notice there's a progression there. If we were quick to listen, if we, were, if we would just listen first, and we'd be slow to open our mouth, we'd, slow, we'd be slow to getting angry. But usually, we're, we, we, man, listening is not the thing we want to do. We want to open our mouth, and then we get angry. And the rest of that verse says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Man, when we get angry, we do not produce the righteousness that God desires. We say things, hurtful things, may even start cursing or, or, or doing things, but it doesn't produce Anger does not produce the righteousness that God wants to see. The third guideline, speak the truth always, but do it in love. Ephesians 4.16. Speak the truth always, but do it in love. That means being concerned about the other person's feelings. You see, the way a message is received depends on the spirit in which it's given. You know, you might be saying something that, that's, that's truthful, but if you're giving it in just a, a, a manner which you don't care about the other person's feelings, then it's not going to be received well. When you speak the truth in love, don't exaggerate. All right? It will just add, add, add to your problems. And what I mean by don't exaggerate, exaggerate, don't use words like you always. You never. 
And I love this one because nobody ever finds out who everyone is or they. They say. Everyone says. Well, who's, they, nobody ever finds out who those people are. But boy, we like to use it like crazy to make our point. Ephesians 4.15, Paul said, We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Ephesians 4.25, Paul said, Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Colossians 3.9, Paul said, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man. That, mean who you, that means who you used to be and put off his deeds, the things that you used to do. The fourth guideline, do not use silence to frustrate the other person. Explain why you're hesitant to talk at this time. You know, there are times that we need to be silent. When we get angry and our thoughts are all over the place and and we're just on the verge of of blowing up, we need to remain silent. You need to, you know, there's time to be silent, it says in in, um, uh, Ecclesiastes, and there's a time to speak. But you need to understand, silence presents a negative feedback. A spouse's lack of concern for his or her partner's feelings and their refusal to discuss things with that, you talk to them, it, it can destroy a marriage. But again, you know what? It, it, there are times that we need to cool down. We need to get our thoughts together and let, let get a cool head before we say anything. And then, again, uh, when we do get uh, upset and we don't want to talk, we need to explain why. Look, you know, you said something that kind of hurt me and, you know, I was bummed out by it. And then explain so that you're not walking around silent and not saying anything. Because how many times do you say, what's wrong? Nothing. I know something's wrong. No, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm, I'm fine. But you know. But you're not saying why. Again, that's, that's very frustrating. And it, you know, it doesn't help the communication process. It doesn't help in the relationship. All right, the, number, uh, the fifth guideline, do not become involved in quarrels. It's possible to disagree without quarreling. Proverbs 14, 29 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And here's one, Proverbs 29.11, A fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Proverbs 17.14, Starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate, so stop before a dispute breaks out. The sixth guideline, do not respond in anger. Now, talking that about a minute ago sometimes we need to remain silent we need to take a step away we need to step back and get our thoughts together and allow our emotions to 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 calm down do not respond in anger use a a soft and kind response that comes from uh, proverbs 14 29 uh, this particular uh, one is uh, proverbs 15 1 proverbs 25 15 proverbs 29 11 ephesians 4 32 Colossians 3.13 and 1 Peter 4.8. The seventh guideline is when you're wrong, admit it and ask forgiveness. Admit it and ask for forgiveness. When someone confesses to you, you tell them you forgive them. And you be sure that it's forgotten and not brought up again. Have the humility to remember you could be wrong. Now you say, well, how often should I forgive? Peter asked the same question of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? 70 times 7. 490 is not the magic number. It's just a figure of, you know what? There, there is no magic number. 
As often as, as, one is, as often as you're asked to forgive, you're to forgive. And again, think about how many times we've had to go to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. He's never said, no, no the, the maximum, you've reached the maximum. You know, 490 times you've come. No, it's a, you know, you ask for forgiveness. If you truly confess and repent and you're truly sorrowful and you ask forgiveness, the next, the next responsibility belongs to the person to give the forgiveness. When those two phrases, I messed up, or, or, or you know, I, I'm sorry, you're forgiven. When those two words can be practiced, you'll succeed. I'm sorry, you're forgiven. Then you're going to make it. But usually, when, when you, you hold tight and you get resentful and bitter and, and you don't you don't want to forgive and or you don't want to you know ask for forgiveness, there's going to be real real hard difficulties. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter, that is, dwells on it, separates friends. You know, and Paul said, love does not record, Lord, love does not take a record of the wrong done to them. We forgive, we forget, it's to be over and done with. God says, of us, Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he, God, removed our transgressions from us. God says as far as the east is from the west, opposite directions, those sins will never meet up again in God's mind. He forgets our sins. Jeremiah 31.34 says, God says, for I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. If God can forget our sins and not bring them, it's not like they're wiped out of his, you know, he knows everything, but he never brings them up to us. He never reminds us, oh, you just done this a couple of weeks ago, a weeks ago, you know, you, you really aren't serious about what you're saying. And, you know, God doesn't do that. He says, I will remember your sin no more. The eighth guideline and this is a good one. Avoid nagging. Avoid nagging. And this is for the man as well as the woman. Okay, so a lot of times we look at the lady and we blame her and, and guys can nag just as well as anybody else. But avoid nagging. Proverbs ten nineteen says, To talk much leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. And I'm reading it from the New Living Translation. Uh, it makes it very clear. Um, also, it says uh, in Proverbs 17, 9, in Proverbs 20, verse 5, love prospers when fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. Again, remember, too much talking can be as bad as too little talking. Here's the thing. If you've adequately discussed a problem or a subject, drop it and move on. No matter who does the nagging, it doesn't work. It usually irritates and frustrates both the husband and the wife. And it's very effective, in a negative way, it's very effective at putting out any spark of romantic love or desire to communicate. So it should be avoided at all times. And I hear the voice, hey, well, how do I get something done without having to nag? Well... Let's say, for example, you, lady, you need, ladies, you need something fixed at the house. Um, got a, a, a water faucet that's dripping. You say, honey, you know what? Can, can, you know, could you possibly fix that, you know, whatever you, you know, uh, have time? And you might think, well, that could be, you know. So I'll do that six months down the road. No. 
He has to give you a time, guys, you need to give her a time that you both can live with. Well, honey, can I do that next week? And, and if, that, if that fits you and you're okay with that, you say, okay, that, that, that'll work. I can, I can wait till next week, no problem. Now, if next week comes and it's still dripping, guy, you can't, you, you can't get mad at her because she's come and you say, oh, quit nagging me. No, you told her you were going to get it fixed that week. And now, you know, she's coming and say, you know, hey, so again, it's easy. Make that, make that arrangement together. You, you both agreed upon a certain time. You know what, guys, or whoever it might be, keep your word to fix it. And, or whatever the problem is when you tell your spouse. So again, that avoids the nagging and nobody has to nag after that. The ninth uh, guideline, do not blame or criticize the other, but restore them, encourage them and edify them. We are real good at criticizing. We're real good at blaming, but we're not real good at encouraging and, and edifying. In other words, if you're going to criticize your spouse, at least Offer a, a, a solution to the problem at the same time. Romans 4, 13, 14, 13, Paul said, let, So let us stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Galatians 6, 1 is a great, a great scripture to remember. Paul said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Such a, uh, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Let me read it again. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In other words, if, if a person, and your wife, your husband, has been overtaken in a fall, they said they, they've sinned. You who are spiritual are to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the word restore here, it's a medical term. It's the idea of restoring a dislocated bone. Now, a dislocated bone, it hurts. Now, it has to be put back into its proper place. Now, for the most part, I doubt that a doctor is just going to grab that puppy and just start tweaking and jerking and trying to push it back into place. It's going to hurt. It says, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit, in other words, you encourage them, you edify them, you help them out. You bring them back to that place of restoration with, this, with the, the least amount of pain as possible. But it says, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Because one day the shoe could be on the other foot. You may be the one who needs that gentle restoration. And you want your spouse to come and to help you into that place to ease you into that place gently. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. The last guideline, number 10, try to understand the other person's opinion. Make allowances for differences. Be concerned about their interests. So remember, getting married doesn't mean that you, you, you've lost your personality or who you are, you, that your, your feelings don't count, your opinions don't count, or your interests don't count. We still have those when we get married. God's brought them together to make your marriage richer and stronger. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul said, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? 
Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interests in others too. Ephesians 4.2, Paul said, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your, because of your love. Even with all of God's instructions that he's given us, that he's left us, we still have a high divorce rate today. Now, does that mean God's word, God's ideas for marriage, just they're obsolete, that they really don't work or that his design doesn't work anymore? Does that mean in spite of the wonderful wisdom of God and the wonderful principles that he gave in Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25, that was good for Adam and Eve, isn't good for the world today? You know, it's kind of like, has God looked around lately to see how things have changed since, you know, he first wrote this? You know, since he officiated at the, at the first wedding? You know, does he maybe need to revise his marriage principles to meet today's problems, to meet today's man and woman and the things they have to deal with today? It, you know, it, hey, it is quite a long time since Adam and Eve's wedding. You know, this is what, the way a lot of people think today. If I married the wrong person for all the wrong reasons, does that mean that we, should have, that we should have stayed together to make it right? We prayed for our feelings to change, for our marriage to change, and we went to counseling, we went to retreats, but nothing worked. We still didn't love each other, or we still didn't want to be with each other anymore. So instead of being miserable, and again, you know, they use that, 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 that quote, in, that, that verse in... in um, 1 Corinthians 7, where, you know, God has called us to peace. They say, well, God doesn't want me to be unhappy, you know, and after several years of marriage, we thought it was best to get a divorce because it was the lesser of two evils. You know, and again, you say, well, you know, I believe that, that, you know, God has called me, you know, to peace, and he has, but again, it was in that particular situation. If you're married to an, you know, an unbeliever and he wants to go, let him go, all right? Now, separation, maybe, but divorce, no. So the thinking is that if I married the wrong person, the smart thing to do is get a divorce. And God knows my heart, how I tried to make things work out. But eliminating it altogether, you know, is the best thing. That's what is thought. But we have to look at this thinking for what it is in light of God's word. We have to look at it not based on our, our opinions and our feelings. It's, here's the thing too you know i hear people say well you know i lost my love for that person you know you don't lose your love you stop loving you stop loving first john three twenty one says and whatever we ask we receive from him because here's why we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight and, and again it's it's People will say, well, you know, I've been waiting for the feeling to come back. I've been praying for God to give me those feelings again. You're going to wait all day. Because you see, it's not that they're gone. You stopped loving. God's word says, whatever you ask from him, because we keep his commandments and do them, are pleasing in his sight. We say, Lord... Give me the feelings. God says, do what I say, and then I'll give you the feelings. That's living by the word of God. That's living by faith. 
But we say, God, give me the feelings first, and then I'll do what you tell me. And he says, do what I, do what I tell you, then I'll give you the feelings. It's what's living by faith. He says he'll give us whatever we ask if we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. God doesn't, see, God doesn't command you to feel like loving. He says, come on, man, I want you to feel like loving this person. No, he directs you to think and to speak and act in a loving manner. Loving others is to be done whether they are lovable or not. And we all know not everybody is, is, is easy to love. But we're to love them anyway. This is God's word. Does God still expect, uh, uh, expect people who live in a sinful world today to obey the marriage ordinance that he instituted in the Garden of Eden? Yes, he does. Jesus already answered the question in Matthew 19, 3 through 10. The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning male and female said, For this reason, man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you. Notice, Jesus didn't say he, he didn't command you to put, their, put to divorce your wife. He permitted you because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, that was never so. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. God is serious about his wedding, the marriage vow. The Pharisees had come to Jesus hoping to trip him up and to get him caught up in a messy controversy about divorce because of their liberal views on marriage. But the way Jesus answered the Pharisees shows us what our attitude towards marriage and divorce should be. Jesus ignored the bickering religious authorities of that day and their preoccupation with excuses or the loopholes for divorce. Jesus focused on the word of God as the only real authority. Notice he took them back to Genesis. He said, have you not read? That's usually the case. We haven't read. We don't know the scriptures. Jesus took him back to the original design for marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, as being the only valid valid standard and authority for the discussion. Matthew says that Jesus first answered the Pharisees like this, Haven't you people who are always boasting about how much you know about the Word of God, have you even read Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24? Jesus clearly recognized these two passages as God's first and last word on marriage, which is still his first and last word for marriage in a sinful world today. Jesus told the Pharisees, because of the hardness of your heart, and that hardness of heart is an unwillingness to forgive. Because of that hardness of heart, that unwillingness to forgive, you were allowed divorce. But from the beginning, that was never God's intent. Divorce was never God's intent. So Jesus takes them back to the beginning where we still find our instruction for marriage and the standards that we need to follow today. So if you're trying to build a love love relationship into your marriage or trying to work out problems in your marriage, but you don't, but, 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 but you have, uh, you, you, you don't even, if you have, if you have the slightest idea 
You know, again, in, in trying to work out your marriage, work out your, difficult, uh, your, your difficulties, if you even have the slightest idea that, res, that, that divorce is a last result, it will have a negative effect on everything you're trying to do. Because in the back of your mind, say, well, if this doesn't work, I'm going to get a divorce. Divorce should never be an option. Because holding on to divorce as a last-ditch last option, uh, if you hold on to it, you won't pour yourself into the marriage. Keeping divorce as an escape route shows that you're not really committed to making it work. Divorce should not be in your mind or in your vocabulary. In closing, what was the main cause of Adam and Eve's failure in the garden? To obey God's word. That's the bottom line. They didn't take God at his word. When, when, when God said, when you eat of the fruit of that tree, you're going to die. Satan comes and said, did God really say that? And Eve began to dialogue with Satan. And she fell for it. She didn't believe God. She didn't take God at his word. We all have the tendency to withdraw from each other, to be separate, to focus on our own selfish needs and wants, to live for ourselves, and then to blame those closest to us in order to protect ourselves, just like Adam did. Oh, Lord, it's the wife that you gave me that caused me to sin. First picture of, uh, of pointing the blame. We blame the closest to us in order to protect ourselves and do those things that aren't pleasing to God. We will never reach perfection in our marriage until we follow the God-given pattern in Genesis 24, 2, 24 and 25. And by following God's plan, we will discover the thrills and the wonders that he planned for us. And will never fulfill the purpose that he set before us of showing his love to a needy world who needs to know the love of God through the example of our own love. I mean, if we can't show it in our own marriage and to others, how are we going to show it to a world who's in dire need of the love of God? Father, we thank you once again for your word, God. So, so applicable today, Father. So necessary today, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us to do what we need to do, Father. As your word says, if we keep your commandments, that is, obey your word, and we do those things that are pleasing to you, that you will give us what we ask for, God. And Lord, we receive by faith, not by sight, God. We know that you will give us the feelings when we take you at your word, God. You will make the necessary changes. You will transform us, God, into the image of Christ as we obey your word and fulfill your word, God, through our behavior, through our actions, God. Help us to be what you've called us to be, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.